0: I'm Rick Kleffel, and welcome to the Agony Column podcast. This week, we'll hear my interview with writer Christopher Moore, the author of Lamb, Fluke, The Stupidest Angel, and his latest novel, A Dirty Job. Those who have heard the previous episodes in this podcast will know that I usually start my interviews with an author reading, and this interview is no exception. Except that Christopher Moore doesn't do readings, something I knew when I asked him again this time around. When we tried to get a reading, the results were so entertaining, I had to obtain permission from the writer to include them in the interview. Listeners should be aware that the beginning of this interview contains language that would earn the interview an R rating from the Motion Picture Association of America. I'd like to thank the author for allowing me to include this unvarnished, unedited segment. Now let's join my interview with Christopher Moore as he and I discuss the niceties of self-censorship.
1: This is, you know this will be harder to not do the F word than it would be to to do interviews without using the f word. I'm going to have to censor this on on the fly as long as I can get just fifteen seconds of reading a good right, joke right. or so,
0: I can put that for as the header for the I broadcast see. and then for the podcast, yeah we can work, do anything yeah, 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 yeah and that's actually a plus, yeah you put the explicit tag on your podcast, you and everybody's uh, like, yeah,
1: it's got naked on it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. See, I'm totally not prepared to pick a passage to read. I don't normally read, as you know, because we've done this before. Um, I will read the opening to it. I like this passage, um, and you can can intro it as a second. I'll I'll read the opening, which is an opening, you know, the opening paragraph, which will take, you know, 35 seconds or something like that. Mm -hmm. This passage um, is about his walking through Chinatown and encountering all the grandmothers, and it does have the F word in the end of it um no that's great but uh anyway well let's let's try that you know, so i'll do it do i have a break between you're going to edit all this right because i could not stop for death he kindly stopped for me because i could not stop for death he kindly stopped for me charlie asher walked the earth like an ant walks on the surface of water as if the slightest misstep might send him plummeting through the surface to be sucked to the depths below Blessed with the beta male imagination, he spent much of his life squinting into the future so he might spot ways in which the world was conspiring to kill him. Him, his wife, Rachel, and now newborn Sophie. But despite his attention, his paranoia, his ceaseless fretting from the moment Rachel peed a blue stripe on the pregnancy stick to the time they wheeled her into recovery at St. Francis Memorial, death slipped in. To walk through Chinatown at dawn was to become part of a dangerous dance because there were no back doors or alleys for loading, and all the wares went across the sidewalk. And although Charlie had enjoyed neither danger nor dancing up till now, he enjoyed playing dance partner to a thousand tiny Chinese grandmothers in black slippers or jelly-colored plastic shoes who scampered from merchant to merchant, squeezing and smelling and thumping, looking for the fresh... Uh, Fuck, this is why I don't read aloud. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) To walk through Chinatown at dawn was to become part of a dangerous dance. Because there were no back doors or alleys for loading, and all the wares went across the sidewalk, and all the... Oh, wrong inflection. Let me once again start and reiterate, I don't read in public, and this is why. (laughs) Take three. To walk through Chinatown at dawn was to become part of a dangerous dance. Because there were no back doors or alleys for loading, and all... Fuck. <sighs> to walk through Chinatown at dawn was to become part of a dangerous dance. Because there were no back doors or alleys for loading, and all the wares went across the sidewalk, and, all, and although Charlie had neither... Fuck! Uh,
0: no worries. Do you want to uh, just punt it? I got 30 seconds at the beginning. That worked for me. I mean...
1: Let me, let me try this one more time, and I'll try and slow down. This is, see, the r- two things. I don't read because I try to read too fast, mm-hmm. and I try to edit on the fly, which is bad. Uh, don't
0: don't edit on the fly because you know uh, one thing I was thinking it sounds like the way you write sounds very poetic.
1: Oh well, th- thank you very much. <laughs> 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 it's it's how I think. Unfortunately, I do not speak that way. Um, to walk through Chinatown at dawn was to become part of a dangerous dance. Because there were no back doors or alleys for loading, and all the wares went across the sidewalk, and although Charlie had enjoyed neither danger nor dancing up till now, he enjoyed playing dance partner to a thousand tiny, tiny, thr- fucking grandfathers. Uh, <laughs> I just can't do this. Right. I just can't do this. I'm sorry.
0: No, no, no. And I'm, I'm very tempted to leave
1: this part in the, uh, in the, the podcast. podcast? <laughs> yes, <laughs> because it's so fun. <laughs> Let's <clears throat> well, see. the The section I want to get to is where he he starts to take the eggplant from her, and she goes, "Oh, white devil, you do not want to pour." La- pour- Purloin that purple fruit, for I have 4,000 years of ancestors and civilization on you. My grandparents built the railroads and dug the silver mines. My parents survived the earthquake, the fire, and a society that outlawed even being Chinese. I'm a mother to a dozen, grandmother to a hundred, and great-grandmother to a legion. I have birthed babies and washed the dead. I am history and suffering and wisdom. I am a Buddha and a dragon. So get your fucking hand off my eggplant before you lose it. And that's (laughs) in the voice of this Chinese grandmother. But the whole thing leads up to that last line, and I obviously cannot get through to the lead-in, so let's talk about whatever you want to talk about.
0: Okay. Christopher Moore is the author of Fluke, Lamb, and the Stupidest Angel. His latest novel is A Dirty Job. Welcome to the program, Chris. Thank you very much. Chris, humor that's really funny is funny because you observe something that's just true, and when you observe it, it becomes so obvious, and the observation you make that This is the core of this novel, I think,
1: is this concept of the beta male. Well, I think that what happens with with humor is you can illuminate things that you can't... You can come at an oblique angle to subjects that might cause resistance if you came at them head on. Or does that mean the same thing? Um, (laughs) Anyway, you can sneak up on issues if you're trying to be funny about them. And the beta male is basically... My theory, in biology, the, the idea of the beta male exists among you know, marine mammals and other hierarchies, but in, in the human species, I found that nobody had really sufficiently defined the beta male. All they knew is that Al Gore was one. Now, um, wait a second. You mean there's <laughs> there's really a, a beta
0: male theory in biology? Oh yeah, absolutely. Oh, oh I you, didn't know yeah. That. The best
1: example I can give you is elephant seals, because a lot of people have known that they've seen the documentaries where you have the big beachmaster male who, who they all fight on the beach, and then the the winner actually gets to mate with all the females who are on the beach at that point. But at the surf's edge. All the ones who basically got their butt kicked are the beta males, and they wait. And as the female seals go back into the water, they go, Hey, you know, he doesn't really understand you. He's such a brute. And, you know, what do you think? Well, consequently, since they wildly outnumbered the beta male, the dominant male, they're getting a little action too. That's an example that I'm familiar with because I did a book on marine mammals called Fluke. Among the human animal, I did a search, you know, a Google search on it, and I could find nobody had defined it, and I thought, well, I know really nothing about sociology or biology. I will do that. My theory is that the beta male, we all know what an alpha male is. It's these sort of strong, self-confident, you know, sometimes fast, sometimes agile, whatever, you know, leaders that that, uh, everybody sort of is aware of. But the beta males are the guys who survived not by killing the mastodon or beating everybody else up, but by being able to anticipate danger and avoid it, and therefore survive and pass their genes on. So when the the alpha males were out charging mastodons, the beta males went, you know, that seems akin maybe to attacking a bulldozer with a pointy stick, and I think I'll sit back and just console the widows, and therefore they were able to pass their genes on. And, and you know, in, in the sense of sheer numbers, beta males are much more successful than alpha males in the human population. But what we have now is this vestigial imagination that really isn't very useful for us anymore. It might have worked as cavemen because we could anticipate danger, but now it just sort of makes beta males a little bit paranoid or, you know, addicted to Baywatch reruns or re- video games. One of the things that your novel
0: has is this sort of underdog appeal, of course, of the beta male. But I'm wondering if you've had any readers who have been somewhat hesitant. I mean, I, I don't know, as much as I feel that I'm a beta male, I, I, I'm
1: somewhat hesitant to step up and say, yes, I am a beta male. Well, of course, well that's because there's no section in The Bleachers that wants to chant, we're number two, we're number two, <laughs> or has, you know, great big giant foam peace signs because, uh, you know, denial is a big part of being a beta male. Most beta males think they're alpha males and they just have stealth charisma. They can't really be detected by... Uh, any woman that's not made out of carbon fiber. But essentially, uh, I I don't think you're alone. I don't think most guys think that they, they don't want to be beta males. No, I sort of have to own it because if I define beta males by having this sort of overdeveloped imagination and I make my living with my imagination, I sort of, I pretty much have to own the fact that I am a beta male and I certainly do, but, but most guys aren't going to be comfortable with it. And, um, that's okay. You know, self delusion among beta males has built a lot of things. Like for instance, Las Vegas, the entire concept is built on the delusion of beta males who think that somehow, um, their imagination is going to give them access to, you know, leggy blonde types that really wouldn't kick them in the ribs to get a bug off their shoe or, or, you know, like cocktail waitresses with improbable breasts and, and, you know, opulent towers and free treasure. You know, that's the kind of thing a beta male comes up with. And, uh, So that's actually part of your makeup. This is one of those you can't win situations because, yeah, go ahead and deny you're a beta male. That's part of being a beta male. Okay. (laughs) Thanks. (laughs) We don't have a club, you know. I feel it's more like the procrastinator's club. You know, the real members haven't gotten around to joining.
0: One of the things you mention is the importance of the imagination. Mm -hmm. And this is a very interesting concept because, indeed, the imagination is important. And, indeed, you write imaginative literature. So I wonder if you'd wanna talk about how it's natural that the science fiction and horror and fantasy fandom is probably, how does it function
1: when it's gotta be all beta males? Well, I don't know. I think you pretty much, you know, what the thing that you don't really, I didn't really consider because I didn't have to for this book is that there probably isn't, is a hierarchy that goes further than, than beta males, you know, and, <laughs> <laughs> you, you know, are there deltas and, I mean, does it go all the way, you know, to the omega? Maybe. The science fiction fandom are just sort of uh, betas who more or less have accepted their lot more than <laughs> they're feeding that imagination. They're not their their sense of denial isn't quite as developed, or it's so highly developed that they will you know name their kids Legolas and stuff like that. I have no idea, really, to be honest with you. But I, most of society, pretty much, what I figured is seven out of ten males and two out of ten females are beta males. So that's you know, it's it's perfectly acceptable to say, "Well, how does you know science fiction fandom survive if they're all beta males?" Everybody's beta males. You mentioned two out of ten females. Females. How, how do
0: two out of ten females translate to beta males?
1: They pretty much just have all the everything but the plumbing in place. Hmm.
0: As you developed the character of Charlie Asher, mm-hmm. who's the the, the, the protagonist, protagonist in, protagonist in, A Dirty in Dirty Job. your newest novel, A Dirty Job. Did you develop the concept of beta male around him or did he stem did you come up with this concept of the beta male and then say, This is the character or he's going to demonstrate these? I think it was the latter. I think
1: I think what I did is I said, Okay, these are the elements that I need to have in this character And they typify what I think a beta male is. And so sometimes I would adjust, again, because I was the one that was coming up with the definition, sometimes I would adjust the definition of beta male to fit what I needed Charlie to do. And other times I would change Charlie's uh, personality to fit more what I needed in, in the sense of a beta male. And he also overcomes his own personal demons somewhat and his paranoia um through the course of the book i mean charlie rises as all my books i think somebody pointed out yesterday that well aren't all your heroes beta males in all your books and i think well yeah they probably are but i didn't know about them until this book and they all sort of rise to the occasion i think that's the that's the thing that makes them appealing is that you can identify with this guy because you know that he has you know not just normal fears but probably paranormal fears and and is able to overcome them and, and sort of uh, prove himself. So Charlie sort of rose to the occasion, but there was no doubt that he was defined by what I was trying to do is thematically is say, okay, here's a beta male. And it was also uh, thematically part of dealing with fear of death, which was something that is the biggest, sort of the biggest goblin in the closet in, in our whole life, more or less.
0: Your novels deal with a succession of supernatural tropes. Mm-hmm. You've done vampires um the coyote so what took you so long to get around to death
1: I think that um I didn't really see it as a supernatural theme as much you know in in fiction it really came out of seeing the passion that is involved and passion may not be the right word intensity of the fear of death um uh, I was primary caretaker for my own mother when she was dying of cancer and for five months. And, uh, and then when my, w- my wife-like girlfriend's mother died about a year later, she was a primary caretaker and then I, um, um, I helped her. And so I saw what was going on around people dying and including the person who was dying, those who were caring for them, the relatives, the friends. Um, and what seemed to be the worst part of it all was this fear of death. You know, once pain was taken care of, the, the, the biggest, as I said, the goblin in the closet was, was the fear of death. It was the thing that caused the most distress. And so that was the powerful element that I wanted to take on in this book. And I, I think I didn't get around to it in fiction before because um, it hadn't really reared its head in my own life before. I hadn't observed it. and Or if I had, I hadn't had the maturity to see what was going on. Um, And so that's how it came to be, you know, in the forefront of of what I was writing as opposed to something that was sort of like, oh, I think I'll take a werewolf and put him in here or, you know, take a trickster god and see what happens if you put him in the modern world. I wanted to take somebody who was more or less defined by their fears, which was the beta male who has this imagination that can imagine every horrible thing that can happen to you, because that's the trailing edge of a cutting edge imagination, um, and put him up against the greatest fear, which is the fear of death, it seems
0: this book is a peculiar combination because it's often very, it's beautiful, it's sentimental, it's sweet. At the same time, it's bracingly funny. So tell us, as a writer, how did you combine
1: these different threads? I Well, the funny part is just how I react to the world. And that's, that. I think that's the the question I get that most often is how do you take something like death and make it funny? I react that way, but that's my default setting, if you will. And so even when I was going through these things personally, I was joking through the whole thing. And if I wasn't, if it was inappropriate for me to joke aloud, that's what was going on in my head. That thing that you probably shouldn't say or think at the funeral, I would take a note. And, and so the funny part was the easiest part. The tougher part was trying to as you said, balance the, the, the real pain and the real profundity of the loss of life, uh, along with these very highly comic scenes. Quite frankly, I, I, I'm not sure how I did that. I think the book does that, but I couldn't tell you this was the way I went about doing it. I had, uh, um, you sort of learn your chops over the years. And once I had dealt with things like trying to uh, retell the, un, the untold years of Christ's life in Lamb, that was a tough job. And having pulled that off, I went, well, I can do death. I can do funny death standing on my head, you know. Um, so, I, so it was basically, I think it was just a there, – there's no method that I can define for you except to say the funny parts were easy. It was more trying to show portraits of these families as someone was dying. Um, and different attitudes of people um, toward death, as well as Charlie, who's going through grief through most of the book. I don't want to ruin the book for those who haven't read it, but, I mean, he's sort of dealing with a pretty profound loss almost from the beginning of the book, as well as trying to deal with all these supernatural things. He basically gets the job of being death, and he's paranoid in the first place. So, um, you know, it it was like juggling to try and keep it funny and to keep, um, keep it real in the aspect that this guy is dealing with a very profound loss, um, while realizing he's causing this loss for other people, um, uh, I, I haven't answered your question. I have no idea. It was luck. It was basically luck. Tell us a little bit about the way you create your characters. They seem to you
0: seem to like normal characters. You're you you do not have any superheroes. Your characters all have pretty normal lives, don't they?
1: Well, I think they have normal lives because they have to. I think you have to. Uh, you have to have some something that. I can relate to, that people can relate to, because I'm about to throw some really extraordinary situations at them. And you're going to be able to relate to them if you say, oh yeah, I'm like that guy. I drop my toast all the time and it it hits peanut butter side down or whatever. And uh, and that's sort of the kind of guy that Charlie is in this book. I just approach it that way. I just look at what are the little things in our life that sort of define our life. And I make my characters up of that because I'm about to throw some really extraordinary things at them in every book I do. And it's necessary to do that and you know and th- sometimes the bad guys are pretty extraordinary and in this book there are there's m- personifications of death in a dirty job that sort of live in under the streets of san francisco that are very much superhero type of or i would say super villain types except they're even darker than what you would see in sort of a comic book sense
0: your books, though, they deal with a lot of supernatural themes, don't tend to be frightening or disturbing. And this book gets into that realm of frightening and disturbing. So tell us a little bit about how you created, how you researched the monsters in the first place. That was something that I found fascinating, the ones you chose.
1: Well, the, the reason that when I started doing uh, research on death, I looked for personifications of death. In other words, which have it turned out have been around since, you know, we've been around, since humans have been around. There's been paintings of some dark specter. Um, and a lot of them are portrayed as, you know, birds and dark birds and so forth. And uh, I actually picked the, the ones that I have in the book are, are the Morrigan, which is a, 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 child, a Celtic myth. Um, and it's sort of a three graces of death. are three sisters of death. But there was so little material about them. That it gave me a lot of freedom. So mm-hmm. very, sometimes the reason that I pick a, a, a something is, the, for, like for instance, like doing Lamb because hey, nobody'd written Thirty Years of Christ's Life. I think I'll do that. It was the same thing. It's like I can't find anything on the Morrigan. I get to do whatever I want with them. And so what I had were these three fearsome battle sisters of death who personified themselves, as, you know, in uh, sometimes as ravens or crows. And I chose them. And then I chose another one called a, a Greek. Uh, name of Orcus, of which there was nothing except his name. You know, and sometimes they would say he was dark. It was in, you know, the big dove. Oh, he's a personification of death and he's dark. Um, And because I was playing with personifications of death in this book, because there are many, uh, those were great ones to have, and they were they were great fun because I was able to write, you know, give them personalities. You know, the three Morgan are I think are hilarious, you know, but they're very fierce, they're very scary, as you say, because they really are. They're all about death; it's cool to them, you know. So, so they they play with carrion a lot um, throughout the book. But uh, that was why I picked them, is I couldn't find anything that would refute my take on them.
0: You also base some of your creatures on the work of an artist. And I want you to tell us a
1: little bit about this artist, because these are fantastic creatures. Well, this was the strangest thing. I was in the mission in San Francisco. Actually, there's a, a, a science fiction bookstore called Borderlands in the mission in San Francisco. and I was there you know, signing books and visiting with people. My wife-like girlfriend, Charlie, said, you have to come to this place next door. There was this gallery garden store called Paxton Gate, and there were these creatures that this artist had made called she calls them sartorial creatures and they were these like 14 15 inch tall creatures made of animal parts like beaver skeletons uh with you know the claws of a of a bird of prey and the feet of a duck but they were dressed in these amazing costumes these this you know renaissance refinery um and you know there there would be like a a jester or a beaver with a fez or uh, you know these amazing gowns like you'd imagine out of louis the 16th court and as it turned out, this woman, Monique Motil, is the costumer for Beach Blanket Babylon, which is like this 30-year-running show in San Francisco. And she she constructs all the costumes for them. I guess there's something like 800. And she wanted to make all these fine costumes, but it's extraordinary, ex- extraordinarily expensive to do these things on spec because of the material. But if you make them for a 14-inch tall character, you can do some things that you could never do you know, financially, full size. So she... Made these strange creatures out of animal parts and put these costumes on them well i I thought I got to bring these things to life and so I used them basically as a way the sort of a means of reincarnation and they come to life later in the book in a dirty job they're you're right, they're just amazing the it, some of them will have the head of a lizard with you know the hands of chicken feet or you know the hands of a squirrel and dressed like a French dandy from the 17th century or something like that but Monique uh, I just met her actually for the first time a few days ago because I had done I'd written the whole book and never met her I just written to her and said can I bring your creatures to life in this book and you know her one of her hobbies is she's a a zombie lounge singer she puts like rotted flesh makeup all over her body (laughs) I'm sorry (laughs) and uh, that's okay (laughs) and and she does an actual live torch song singing thing with like pieces dropping off of her while she's doing it. I've never seen this show, but I thought, okay, I've got to meet this chick. <laughs> and she makes these amazing creatures that I, I think you can see them online at zombiepinups.com. Tell us a little bit about humor. One of the
0: things I noticed in your book is you use different speeds of humor. And, and I'm wondering if you, is, is your stuff, is it, does it just come out or do you think, okay,
1: I'm do you have different structures that you use? You have different I don't have templates that I like plug in. If that's what you mean, I, I'm not quite sure. You know what you mean by different speeds. It's like, yes, I write jokes for slow people. But so no, it's It's called comic timing, and I mean, and the thing that I've I've learned over the years is you. You know, if you stick to one sort of thing, say high rhetorical comedy, which is what you know reviewers would want you to do. Your book's not going to be that funny because there's not, for one, it takes an enormous amount of setup and it takes an enor- enormous amount of thought to write funny narrative, exposition narrative. Whereas if you make some of your characters funny, then the dialogue is going to come out funny. And when I was writing Coyote Blue, which is about the Native American trickster coyote, coyote and coyote in some tribes, his, I wanted to make him true to the to the Native American myth. Well, he's not a tour. All the comedy they describe that he he does is physical. And I thought, can you write physical comedy in prose? Well, it turned out you could. I did. So now that's you know an arrow I add to my quiver. So when you put all that stuff in, basically, now I'm to the point where I just throw everything at the wall. And if it sticks and I think it's funny, I leave it there. And so that's where you're going to sense a, a a different timing among things. Because if you're writing physical things that are going on. Really, the humor is often contained in, in the visual that you're trying to put in people's heads. And so you have to really carefully pick your verbs and, and maybe everything has to be constructed. So uh, it, it gets very boring because you're like talking about, you know, I, I think it was Mark Twain that s- uh, said that analyzing a joke is like dissecting a frog. You understand it, but it kills the frog. Um, <laughs> it's the same thing. But basically what you're sensing in different timing is, you know, you don't want to ruin the mood. If you want, especially in a book like this, where you you sort of want people to be able to breathe, you know, um, and 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 absorb what you're trying to say about, say, death and dealing with death, at, at, and then you want to maybe you know hit them in the back of the head with a dead fish. Um, so <laughs> <laughs> you don't have any dead fish with you, do you? No, no. It's all. It's completely a metaphor. Okay. Uh, yeah. S- except for yeah, just a metaphor. Really okay, good
0: one of the things you do I think quite successfully with this novel is it's pretty much PG-13 there's a a few passages that might have to be bleeped and I'm wondering in this day and age how do you manage this? again is this natural is this a self-censorship or
1: oh no I don't I don't think that at all I don't don't think that at all I think that it's pretty uh, in fact I get taken to task a lot of times because I use bad words in my in my work that's usually as far as it goes I mean I've (laughs) <laughs> i mean i have the morgan like doing puppet shows with dead people um well, <laughs> I, guess, know, I don't know i don't know exactly what pg is in your world <laughs> but um but uh it's i think it's just the world is so twisted that my stuff looks normal but i you know i don't censor myself at all i don't feel like i need to pull back on that sort of thing um i use colorful language let's call it when it works to a comic effect I think and my characters tend to be foul mouths because I tend to be a foul mouth so when I'm you know when I think in terms of you know sort of expletive timing that's where it comes you know. Tell us a little bit
0: about the humor a- and the kind of joy uh, uh, of minutiae. I think you you do do a lot of interesting things with details both funny details and details that are sweet and sentimental and how that kind of Boys up and brings the narrative together and creates something that seems even when though you're talking about something that's completely unrealistic you've got some really wild thing happening you put it together to make it seem real by with these details.
1: You know I interesting that you should you should observe that one of the things that I I came to as a conclusion I guess out of thinking about death was the value of moments and the small things. And when someone is dying and you're around them, and I don't mean to, to suddenly become heavy, but it really is an answer to your question because it was on purpose that I chose to do that with this particular book especially. Um, when someone is dying, you don't really worry about the future too much and you can't worry about the past too much. So you have to kind of, you're forced into this zen like right now. And there's a scene in the book where this woman's eating cheese and she's maybe got a, an hour to live at this point, if that but she's eating cheese, and it is the best cheese she's ever eaten. And I had made a decision. I had said to my editor when I, I was deciding to write this book that I wanted to show life as these extraordinarily shining moments. And most of them aren't going to be, you know, the charge of the light brigade or, you know, the birth of your child. They're going to be having some cheese or waking up and looking out the window in the morning. And I... I would have to say if there was an influence to that kind of thinking, it was reading Billy Collins, who is, you know, was our po- poet laureate. He'd probably be horrified to hear this, but I, I was reading his poetry, and I thought, this guy really distills a moment the way that the Japanese did in haiku. And it, maybe I can do this in a funny book, where I just take these, as you call minutia, these, these little details, and build a bigger picture of what I'm trying to say. And so, and they can be funny, and that's one of the things Billy Collins does, is he takes a perfect moment and he takes it to the absurd in metaphor, which is all language is, and makes it funny. And I thought, well, okay, maybe I'll give that a try in a whole novel form. And and this is the perfect novel thematically to do that, because if death makes you realize anything, it's the preciousness of minutiae in your moments. There's a couple of blips of political
0: humor. Mm. And I, I'm wondering, again, Presumably, then, you didn't restrain yourself there.
1: Well, I do in in this respect is that political humor goes stale really quickly. And so it's almost always done through metaphor. Unless you're really being dense, you're not going to miss what I have to say or what I'm commenting on. But on the other hand, you know, 10 years from now, you should be able to read the book, and you're not going to have to have that political reference to make the book work for you and that's why i come sort of again at this oblique angle toward political humor where i'll say i'll have the emperor who is basically a nuthouse napoleon and he's this you know, homeless guy who thinks he's the emperor of san francisco say at one point that he has to further investigate when he feels that death has come to his city because no responsible leader would let his people, you know, flee in fear or act out of fear without actually doing the research to find out that what you know, danger he thought was there was actually there. Obviously, I'm making some comment about our current times and, and where our country is, but, you know, you'll I hope we'll be able to read this book 20 years from now, and because it's put in the context of how the emperor looks at the world, um, it won't become meaningless or very dated.
0: One thing I'd like to talk to you, to you about is supernatural mechanics, the rules. Tell us a little bit about how you create the rules. Do you create them before you do the work
1: or as you go
0: uh,
1: a lot of times it's as I go because I think well that rule won't work if I want him to do this or that you know the only th- the only rule I think is that you have to me- you have to be internally consistent if you come up with the rules you have to stick to your own rules if uh, for instance if your vampires can be killed by holy water then they better be killed by holy water at the end of the book too um, you can't suddenly say well he's immune to holy water unless you have a really good explanation for doing that with this book i really was sort of making up the infrastructure as i went along because i didn't want to there'd been a lot of, of work on the personification of death you know a lot of grim reaper stuff has been done on on television and in books and i didn't want to do the stuff that everybody else had been had been doing so What's the word I'm looking for? The mechanics of, of how souls migrate and things like that I had to come up with, and they, they had to be internally consistent, but they're pretty convoluted, quite and honestly, very original. So
0: this is something uh, this leads to the next question, of course, which is the religious themes. You tackle some pretty tough religious themes with this book. I mean this is, it, if you back away from it, you think this is the kind of book that would like horrify people who had a firm belief in just about any religion.
1: We're all about horrifying anyone who has any firm <laughs> belief. <laughs> Let's rip the carpet out of anybody that feels secure. I don't think it'll. I don't think it will. I mean, and that's one of the things that I think. I, for one, I don't think anybody that takes it that seriously, it's not going to let them threaten their faith. I don't think that in you know, I it does mess with people's convention, and and maybe it will make them more flexible. I think that. There's so much. I mean, faith is basically an acknowledgement of the unknown. You know, going this is kind of how I think it probably is. Okay, yeah. it is. But there's no empirical proof. I mean, the whole the, the definition of faith is you've made a leap of faith because there was no empirical proof. So there is some level of overcoming doubt in that. All I've done is say, eh, you know, it could be like this. If you've already made your leap of faith, it's not going to make you question that. You're just going to go, oh, well, that's another thing it isn't. And, and so I have, you know, souls transmute transmogrify through physical material objects which is really kind of slap in the face of as you said in your religion you know it's sort of like everybody if there's one thing that most religions have in common is the material world is is not important you know when it comes when measured against the you know the uh the human spirit and well turns out you your soul went into that Duran Duran CD that you didn't throw out in 1993, you know. So, yeah, you're right. Yeah, now that you mention it, yeah, okay, it is horrifying. Uh, Sorry. I'd like to ask you, there's a
0: story by a guy named Andrew Ofit called Population Implosion. Mm -hmm. I haven't read it. Oh, because the premise of that story is that there are only so many souls to go around. Mm -hmm. So when the population reaches a certain level all of a sudden, Grandma's looking at the pregnant lady over there, mm-hmm. thinking, "Boy, that's not a good thing for me."
1: Right? I, you know, I, I would guess I didn't. I haven't read that story, um, but that is not. I mean, that's sort of what's going on in in a dirty job because you know souls are moving from one person to another, and there's a point in time where people are walking around without souls. you they don't feel like, "Oh my God, did I leave my car keys on the counter?" I mean, it's it, they're they're oblivious of this, but. You know, when Charlie becomes a death dealer, when he becomes a, a person the death, basically, he can see these souls, and then he eventually will meet someone who not only can see the souls, but can see whether people have them or not. The idea that's explained sort of at, at length is that the reason is that you don't, you know, it goes on the on the idea that karma depends on lessons, and you are presented with a lesson until you get it, and then you're able to move on to the next level. Well if you flunk 10th grade they don't make you start at kindergarten again so the soul sort of waits for someone who is who has come to a point um... where they're at ninth grade and then you get they find their soul and it move and then if they can move it on fine and if not they have to be kept back another year and their soul goes into you know say the porcelain bear that they keep flowers in or something like that so yeah okay it's way more complex than it needed to be it's funny (laughs) did i mention it's funny (laughs)
0: You've set your novels in Pine Cove, which is, I believe, uh, Cambria?
1: Yeah, it's based on Cambria, in, Cambria. In, in uh central
0: coast of California, yeah. Then you moved to Hawaii. Mm-hmm. And are you still in Hawaii? I live in Hawaii right now. You mm-hmm. live in Hawaii right now. But you set this in, in San Francisco. Why did you make that change? And tell us a little bit about place and humor.
1: Humor was not so much the reason to set this book in San Francisco because basically small town settings or small community settings are easy because you have this feedback that comes from the perception and points of view of different characters which i did in the pine cove books and um even in fluke which is even though it's set in, in maui which is a bunch larger community it's set among whale researchers which is a very small town within a larger community and san francisco the city itself became a character and so each of the neighborhoods plays out as charlie you know does his business in in all these different neighborhoods in Chinatown and North Beach and Russian Hill and the Mission and the Hate. San Francisco was more set because this was going to be more or less a battle between light and dark, and that's very much how I see the city. It's a city that you can see because there's vistas everywhere, and it can change in an instant. Um, I have a scene in my vampire book, Bloodsucking Fiends, which is also set in San Francisco, where you're in the financial district at 4.30, and it's the most alive, vibrant place that you've ever seen if you're there at 730 it's a ghost town and I actually witnessed that and I thought I've got to put this in a book so it's, there's a real light and dark that goes on a real life and death in that city and I thought well it's a great city it's multicultural so I can bring in you know every you know the Hispanic end and the Russian out, you know outlook and the Chinese outlook and so forth and and play those and it's also it's also a city of light and dark. So so that setting was not so much picked for comedy, although I use it to that end, but um but picked because of the contrast of the city.
0: The average supernatural novel to me often is takes place over a confined time period. Mm-hmm. It's very, very short. Mm-hmm. You you know, it starts it, they see the monster and twenty four hours later somebody's walking away mm-hmm. bloody and successful. This plays out over a number of years. So I was wondering if you could tell me how you made that decision and did you make that decision deliberately or did it just work out of the narrative?
1: Um, I made it out deliberately. deliberately. In fact, it, it, uh, the, the book takes place over about six years. I had originally thought I would have it take place over about 15 years and there were certain elements that wouldn't work. It was hard to keep. One of the reasons you write horror stories that take place in a day or two days or two hours or whatever is it's easy to keep the suspense up um, you know, you can keep that ball in the air by everything's moving so quickly. It's a little more difficult to do that over a period. You know, to make time pass over a period of time. And, and I would have to say that basically, I have the chops to do it after nine books. You know, that I can handle. I mean, I mean, I'm not. I'm just saying I, I couldn't. My first book takes place in three days. It had to. I couldn't handle if it had taken place in five or six years because I wouldn't be able to move the time and keep the suspense in the air. This book I was able to, but I wanted it to be 15 years and it wouldn't work and basically because it's this little girl that grows up and it would have been interesting to have her get to be a teenager and I couldn't get her to be a teenager because I couldn't keep the other characters where I wanted them to be you know I have there's a a goth girl character in the in the the book who's going to grow out of that if I keep if the book takes place over 15 years um and I didn't want that to happen so uh the the time period is is was sort of a balance but it was I did decide it before I started
0: you use uh cops in here
1: Now, does Inspector
0: Rivera show up in your other books?
1: Inspector Rivera is a homicide inspector in in, uh, San Francisco at this point, and he actually shows up in my first book, in Pine Cove, where he was working in in, in narcotics. He shows up in a very short scene in my second book where he's working, I think, in narcotics again in in Santa Barbara. And then he shows up... uh, in my third book f- f- as a major character, and that's when we first see him, he's come to San Francisco, and, he's a homi- and that's Bloodsucking Fiends. And he's a homicide inspector um, with a big, gruff, gay partner. Um, and I mean, partner on the job. He's actually, you know, married. Um, and, uh, you know, which was just a fun contrast to do. And then, w- so we, st- I, I don't think we saw him again for a number of years. And so, b- but because this book comes back to San Francisco, Inspec- Inspector Rivera is still working there. And uh, and he's really sort of like a friend. I, and I'll do that occasionally, the same way that the emperor is a character in Bloodsucking Fiends. And it's like, well, he's still going to be in the city. So he's a character in a dirty job too. Tell us a little bit about The Stupidest Angel. Well, The Stupidest Angel was uh sort of a compilation, it was like a total request live uh, from the point of view of a novelist. Um, it was a Christmas book, and there's only so much ambition you can have for a Christmas book. And, and it really came out of a, a really a sort of a mercenary, <laughs> I hate to admit this, I was speaking at the National Sales Conference for all the, the sales people for HarperCollins Publisher, and a, a guy who's become a really good friend of mine who's a national sales rep for HarperCollins came up and he said, you know Chris, You should write a Christmas book. We could sell the crap out of that. (laughs) And I said, Really? What kind of Christmas book? And he said, I don't know, Christmas in Pine Cove. And so I started thinking about it. And I started thinking about it. And I thought, Oh, you know, I could write Christmas in Pine Cove. I've written two books that are set in Pine Cove, this little town in California on the coast, um, practical demon keeping and less lizard of melancholy cove. I thought, Yeah, I've got some characters. They're not doing anything. And I could put them in a Christmas book. And what would I have happen? I'd just have to have something weird happen besides Christmas. And I'd pull in, you know, characters from other books. And so I had actually people had been writing me, you know, by email for years. And they'd say, we want to see Roberto the fruit bat, who is in my book, I do Sequin know, We want to see him again. And I was like, how can I get a Micronesian fruit bat to Central California? So I had to figure out how to do that. And then people were like, we love the angel from Lamb and, and because he's not a very bright angel you know and I thought okay well well that will make it all around how the angel comes to Pine Cove for Christmas to grant a child's Christmas prayer and so I used the characters from uh the other characters from uh the less Lizard of Melancholy Cove and Practical Demon Keeping who had been living in this little town and it was just your typical little coastal town where every tomorrow seems like it's going to be you know like yesterday and uh this angel comes to grant this child's prayer and this this child happens to have seen a uh like an elk's club santa being murdered with a shovel and um he wishes that Santa be brought back to life well it turns out the angel doesn't get it right and he ends up bringing a whole graveyard of people back to life <laughs> during the Christmas so it's basically a basic zombie Christmas story and the difference is my zombies not only kind of walk around going brains they remember everything that everybody said in the graveyard over the years and people say the most absurd things in the graveyard so they're outside you have your typical confrontation I'm ruining the book nobody will ever buy it now but it's okay fine This is a great interview well they can see the movie it's a val yeah. There could be a movie. The, it's a value added, uh, a value added interview. But so anyway, the as the as the zombies are locked out of the big Christmas party and they're trying to break in. Instead of just going, oh, they're screaming, and not only that, so and so has a drug problem, and you know, so and so looks at squirrel porn, and you know, so it was uh, it was great to have the zombies, you know, actually have some secrets too, and you know, the 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 residents actually become more horrified that everybody will find out about their secrets than they are that their brains are going to be eaten by zombies.
0: On that note, <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, what are you working on now?
1: Uh, right now, I'm working on the sequel to Bloodsucking Fiends. It's called You Suck, A Love Story. And it's, uh, it's a vampire story set in San Francisco with this young couple. Um, and it's just sort of their adventures. It's, it's basically a comedy vampire story.
0: Will Inspector Rivera be a character in it?
1: Oh, absolutely. Yeah, uh, Inspector Rivera and his partner and the emperor of San Francisco and his two dogs are in it, as they have been in you know a couple of books now. So, yeah, but I'm hoping that you'll be able to read it if you haven't read the other ones and still enjoy it.
0: That sounds great. We've been speaking with Christopher Moore. He's the author of Fluke, Lamb, The Stupidest Angel, and his new novel is A Dirty Job. Thanks for speaking with
1: us, Chris. Thanks a lot. Take care.
0: You've been listening to Rick Cleffel, interviewing Christopher Moore for the Agony Column podcast. You can find more interviews, reviews, book news and commentary at my website http://trashotron.com/agony. Thank you for listening.